Lewis Allen Van with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Free Tools, we're trying to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you give us a call? It's 291-6901. And you put a 225 in front of that number. You can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. That's right, and we certainly wish you would. Answer any kind of questions you might have, give you a little advice, kind of point you in the right direction. Sure, things happen to vehicles in different parts of the country in different ways. You have your, your southern cars, which... The heat usually eats the batteries out of them. That's a fact. <laughs> and you go up north, you had to worry about your cooling system, make sure it's up to par or the freeze will get you. So That's right. Different things in different country snow, areas. Snow tires, That's which it. is something we really have absolutely no problem with down here. The <laughs> uh, last time it snowed, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and what we call snow is like a oh, yeah. quarter inch of snow on the ground. Yeah, a little bit of ice and yeah. the whole town locks down because they've never driven in it before. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Having dinner last night, and there was a couple from Canada next to us. Uh-huh. And I was kind of chit-chatting with him, and he was talking about how much he liked New Orleans and uh, how much he enjoyed the city and everything. Right. And we were talking about weather and stuff like that. And he said, yeah, he says, this gets pretty hot up in Toronto. Yeah. I said, really? By hot, you mean like 80 degrees, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just hang around down here a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> we're actually having yeah. a cool snap right now. It's only 90, you know? Yeah, wait, wait till the quits raining. Yeah, that's right. Just give us a call. It's 291-6901. We really wish you would. And just in case you want to listen in live to our show, right. rather than podcast, if you happen to be outside of the Baton Rouge area, of course, you can go to iHeart, and the call letters for the station are WBRP, that's Talk 107.3, right? and you can look it up that way, and you can go on iHeart, and you can listen live that way, or you can actually go to our website, and on the section under podcast, there's a little stopwatch, which tells you how long it's going to be before the show comes on again. If you click on that little stopwatch within an hour of the show, it will bring you to a live feed. That's great. So that's another Easy way, way. You can do it. Yeah, that's right. That way you don't have to log on and all that kind of stuff. Right. I believe with iHeart, you got to create an account. And I'm not sure how that I, works. I think you have to create a, an account before you can actually use the service. Okay. I'm not 100% sure of that, but it's a free account. I mean, right. it doesn't cost you anything. It's just a little extra Step. time you mm-hmm. have to, to spend there to, to get in. That's Whereas right. you can go to our website, click the button, and you're there. That's right. And if you don't care to do that, you can always listen on the podcast. It'll just be a little later. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you won't be able to call in live for what you're hearing that day. Correct. But of course, you can always just call between the hours of 10, 11 Central Standard Time, or actually Central Daylight Time right now, I guess and it is. that will get you straight to us. That's right. And be glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. And should you happen to think of something after we go off the air and not be able to get a live answer, you can always go to our website. Hit the contact bar, fill out the little form, and send it in. And Lewis will answer that email and get it right back to you within 24 hours. Oh, absolutely, within 24 hours. And most time, a whole lot faster. because depending on what time of day. Well, that, and during the week, I'm generally sitting at the computer almost all day long. And I probably check my email. Depending, on a Monday, we're generally extremely busy checking cars in. Tuesday, we're fairly busy trying to get jobs written and all that. Well, by Wednesday, normally, I've got enough jobs in process in the shop where I've got a little more free time. So... On a Monday, I may only check it two times during the day. Uh-huh. On like a Wednesday, I may check it five or six times during the day. Right. So it just depends on what else is going on at the time. But you're going to get an answer back pretty darn quick. That'll get your question answered. Absolutely, and that is the way to do it. We're going to go to our phone line with Doug. Good morning, Doug. Yes, sir. Good morning, guys. Good morning. I got a 99 Suburban. Okay. And the fuel gauge oscillates back and forth when it's off or full. Okay. None of the other gauges do it. Yes, sir. That is almost always the sender unit in the tank, Doug, or the wire going to it. And what you can actually do is, if you're fairly handy, you can crawl under the truck, get to that connector, and if you unplug it and the gauge goes to one extreme, 
and you take and ground it and it goes to the other extreme, then you know the gauge and all that is working properly. The gauge and the wiring in between the, the sending unit and the dashboard. That is correct. What happens a lot of times, Doug, there's a harness four connectors on. There's two grounds in that connector, and then there's two, well, there's a hot wire for the fuel pump, and then there's a gauge sending unit. And if any of that gets hot, which it tends to do, it can actually get a loose connection. In fact, they actually revise that harness. Whenever you change the fuel pump, it generally comes with a new harness now. It's a bigger, heavier harness because GM had a lot of trouble with that. So I would check that harness really, really well. In fact, if you can get in there, turn the key to on, have someone sitting there and watch the gauge and get back in and just shake the harness around and see if it jumps up and down or anything like that, then you can buy that little pigtail. They're relatively inexpensive, easy to change. Now, if you have to change the sender unit, it's inside the tank, and you'll have to end up dropping the fuel tank to do that. Well, that pigtail is, what, $5, 10 bucks? Something like that, maybe a little bit more, maybe $15, but okay. it's not a real expensive okay. thing. Yeah. And it comes with a fuel pump when you buy the fuel pump normally. How many miles you got on the truck, Doug? 170. Original fuel pump in it? No, it's the second one. It's probably got probably 50 on this fuel pump. Yeah, and yeah, you got to watch, depending on who changed the pump, sometimes folks, being what they are, they just get a little rough with that connector. When they unplugged it last time around, they might have kind of yanked on a little bit and loosened those pins up, and it just took 40,000, 50,000 miles to start getting enough moisture in there to corrode them up and start giving you uh, symptoms. But I would certainly check the connector first. And if it's not that, then the sending unit itself could be going out. Okay. All righty. All right. Thank hey, you. Thanks for calling, man. Bye-bye. All right. 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive, I would certainly love to have you. Connector you were talking about that comes with the new fuel pump. Mm-hmm. There's actually two grounds back that there. That is correct. And you've got to make sure you get the two grounds hooked up correctly. That is correct. Because if you don't, you end up sending a ground to a circuit that right. doesn't require it. Well, and what happens, you'll end up with a check engine light sometimes. One of those is a chassis ground. The other is grounded through the computer. The ground for the fuel pump is a chassis ground. It's the same as all the other grounds on the car. Correct. But the ground for the sending unit is actually a computer ground. And I know years ago we had trouble. Car came in, or actually it was a, it was a van. Van of some sort, uh-huh. yeah. Chevy and van. It kept throwing an EGR code. Right. And a gentleman had changed the EGR valve. He had changed a lot of parts on it trying to fix that. Right finally brought it to us in desperation just couldn't figure it out and that was what we found is that those two grounds had been crossed in other words the ground for the sending unit was attached to the chassis and the ground for the chassis was attached to the computer ground which was going into the computer and what it was doing it was sending some crud back on that circuit into the computer and when it received that crud it would just generate the first code that came to its mind which uh-huh. just happened to be an egr code it actually had nothing to do with the egr system at all exactly but it just shows you how weird that kind of stuff can be and it would throw an egr code right and we ended up we cut the two wires crossed them back like they went sorted them back together and everything was fine. trouble that's right but you can get some really really weird dynamics like oh that. you can uh, electrical currents are really really weird the way they can do you can end up with transients and all sorts of things like that and not all grounds are direct grounds to chassis. Right. So you got to really, really watch that. Right. Your computer controls the ground side of all your sensors. Well, it does. And for the most part, a lot of the things on a car are controlled through ground. Instead uh, of by power. A computer. Now, a lot of the Honda vehicles, headlights are actually controlled through the ground. Uh-huh. In other words, they have power to them all the time. And when you flip the switch, you're actually closing a relay, which is grounding them. Right. And I had a fellow a few months back, he had called, he had a question about Honda, his headlights wouldn't work. He says, I can't understand it because I know the bulbs are good, I've changed those, and I checked, okay. and it's got power to it. Well, what he was doing, he was taking a test light, 
he was checking for power between that and battery ground. Well, uh-huh. Yeah, you got power all the time, but you're not getting a ground. Right. So you don't have a circuit. You were bypassing the ground. That's right. Light. And couldn't figure that out. But, yeah, lots and lots of things are controlled that way. Another thing is the fuel injectors. They are powered whenever the key is on. They are powered. When they pulse is because the computer has grounded them. And it grounds them for a specific amount of time. It's not necessarily just an on-off. It's a, uh, what they call a duty cycle. Right. A pulse. A timed. A timed pulse. And it's in microseconds. But that's the way it's controlled is through the ground. Mm-hmm. And lots and lots of things are that way. And that can actually end up causing some issues at times. I remember back on some of the older Cadillacs, they had a lot of trouble. And what was happening, the blower motor for the air conditioning was powered all the time, and the computer or the automatic temperature control controlled the ground. Okay. Well, what would happen is that this motor was spinning wide open. All of a sudden, the computer would just reach over and cut the ground off. Well, if you spin a motor, what's going to happen is it becomes a generator. Correct. And if you cut the ground off, this current has to go somewhere. And that current was backing up and knocking out the modules, and they had a high, high failure rate on the modules because right. of the way it was done, because it was picking up a ground where it shouldn't. And we're going to have to take a quick little break, but we'll be right back with more. Give us a call, 291-6901. I get your kicks on Route 66. It winds. And that's why Justin Bieber should never, I repeat, never be cloned. Hey, it's the Ask Alphonse Show with me, Alphonse the Know-It-All Cajun. Hey! Caller, what you want to know? Alphonse, my six-year-old car needs about $2,500 worth of work. A new AC and tires. You think I should do it or invest in a new car? So how much you paid for it six years ago? $40,000. Well, now it's valued at about $10,000, so it costs you $30,000 to drive it the last six years. That's $5,000 a year. Well, let's say you keep the car and spend about $2,500 on repairs every couple of years, which is about $1,200 a year. Way less than a new car, huh? Whoa, sounds like I need to keep my old car. Then bring it to Agco Automotive for regular maintenance, and it will last you even longer. Now that sounds like a good investment. Hey, Al, you got any stock market tips? Oh, for that, you got to tune to my other show, Al's Financial Hour. Learn more about the benefits of Agco at agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Welcome back. If you just join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Alderson, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, tune to us. We'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go and give us a call? It's 291-6901, and we sure wish you would. We'd love to hear from you. We sure would. That'd be a great time to call. we got a little time to get your question answered thoroughly for you. Well, we do, and a lot of times folks will call towards the end of the show or right at the end of the show, and we just don't have time to get, get the questions answered. Correct. Got to kind of give them the bums rush because we've got to be <laughs> out here right at 11. Right. So you always want to call, call in early in the show, and that gives you time to really uh, get a thorough answer. There you go. we got Herb on line. Good morning, Herb. Good morning. Reading in the news on wheels Friday and uh, talking about all-wheel drive, mm-hmm. and some guy had, had tore a tire up and he had made him buy a set or something other. How critical is that on uh, on an all-wheel drive Honda to uh, replace your tire? Do you replace two or all or? Well, Herb, it is always better if you have worn tires, of course, to put four tires on any vehicle, but that's not always practical. You know, sometimes the other tires have three-quarters of the rubber left or something like that. I mean, you can still do it, but any height difference in the tire, even a slight height difference over a number of miles is going to cause some issues. When you tie all four wheels together, 
something has to slip if one wheel turns slower than the other three. And a tire that's, say, an eighth inch shorter than the other three, I don't know the exact math. You can go to my site. There's actually a calculator that will tell you what the difference would be. But it's going to turn, if the tire is slightly taller, then it's going to turn. So it's going to cause some issues. And that being said, I guess it's just a matter of degrees. I mean, if you got 5,000 miles on the other three tires, no, it's probably not a big deal at all. But if you got three quarters, nine tenths of the rubber worn off the other three, it would certainly be better to go ahead and put four tires on it. And that's oh. always the case. Okay, if on the Honda, does the primary, does front wheel primarily drive and the rear only kick in when it's slipping? Or Which Honda is it? It's a Ridgeline. On a Ridgeline, I'm not sorry. That was primarily a rear-wheel drive vehicle, so I'm sure it's like most vehicles. They have a transfer case, and in the front are driven off of that. On, like, your CRVs and stuff, that is basically a front-wheel drive vehicle with the rear differential added into it. So those are primarily the front pulling, and the rear is the secondary on that. Oh, the rear end just doesn't look real big, so I thought the front end probably done all the pulling. When I'm pulling up, I have a boat land, and it seems like my front tires is the one. You know, I wouldn't argue that point with you, Herb, because I'm not sure. We don't see very many ridge lines because I, I think the ridge line is actually a crossover Island. from the Odyssey. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, it may it's, be then. It, so the, the, the Odyssey front, is basically a front-wheel drive vehicle with just a little uh, differential and a drive shaft off of the trans in the front. It right. feeds a differential in yeah. the back. So I know it, it for, could be. For certain, the all-wheel drive Odyssey is that way, and the CRV all-wheel drive is that way. The Ridgeline, I haven't seen that many of them, and the ones I have, I haven't done differential work on. No, so just I they, just never paid note of it. I mean, I can look that up for you in service data if you want to send me an email and tell you for sure, but it could very well be that way. Okay, I was thinking if if the rear don't pull on time, then when you when they did start pulling, well, you was on slippery ground anyhow, so it wouldn't, you know, probably wouldn't be as critical. But I'm not sure how that one is set up. It it, it probably does pull all the time. It may just have a bias to the front. It just depends on the weight. Normally, when they say all wheel drive, then all four wheels are pulling all the time, and they've got some kind of a viscous clutch between there that actually allows them to go at different speeds. When they say four-wheel drive, and that's not a hard and fast rule, but when they say four-wheel drive, generally it's an in-out. You have a transfer case where you can take it in and out of gear and that sort of thing. Then it's two wheels pulling and the other two not pulling. So, yeah. And, again, that's just a generality. Like I said, I'm not familiar enough with that system. i got to tell you, there's not that many of those trucks on the road, and they just don't break that much. So we don't see with that problem. Yeah, I've done brakes on them. I've done maintenance services, maintenance things, things, like, things that. like that, air conditioning. But in fact, I really, we had one in last week. That was a all-wheel drive. Yeah, and I got to looking at it, and it from the bottom side, it looks just like an Odyssey. Really? Okay. Yes. Well, it very same well engine, may be. same drive line, same mm-hmm. setup. Okay. Just got a different body on it. Yeah. Okay. Right. I know. When I pull up to church every Sunday morning in the wet grass, uh-huh. I always used to gun that Dodge and make the rear end slide around. You okay. Know? You gun this one here, it just goes here. He goes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate you. Okay, Herb. Hey, all right. Thank you, man. man. Bye, bye. All righty. 291-6901 is a number. If you want to be part of the automotive hour, we'd always love to hear from you. And we're going to the lines with Scotty. Good morning, Scotty. Good morning. How are you this morning? Doing great, sir. Doing great. Good. I have a question for you. I have a 2004 Yukon XL. Okay. And the air conditioner, sometimes it blows hot air. Okay. And mm-hmm. if you pull off on the right. side of the Turn it road, off, turn it back on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me ask one real important thing, Sky. Now, when you say hot air, it's not outside ambient air. It's hot like a heater? Yes. Yeah, if it's heater air, almost every time, there are four actuators under the dash of that truck. There's one on the left. There's one on the right. There's, there's a, one on the bottom. Right. And then there's 
Let's see. Yeah, There's the one on the driver's side. mode and two temperatures. Correct. And one, at least one of the actuators has probably gone out. The way it works is that it's a little stepper motor. The computer sends counts to it. And five volts positive puts it to one extreme. Five volts negative puts it to the other extreme. Zero volts puts it in the middle. And what happens is that it will start to lose its counts. And when it loses counts, it'll start moving that little door. So what it does, it actually puts the heater on. When you turn the ignition off and back on, you cycle ignition, it rehomes, it goes both ways and finds home again. But inevitably, it'll lose it again, and then it'll start doing it again. Uh, if it's the left side, which it normally is, for some reason, the left one goes out the most. That yeah, one, that's the sign it is. Yeah, that one is easy to change, takes about 45 minutes, and you don't have to program it or anything. There's a gear on the outside of it. When it comes in the box, it actually has a, a gear on the outside of it that has it centered. And when you put it in, you have to be very careful. You can actually take that gear that comes on it off. If you're careful enough, you can take the old actuator off of the gear that's on the side of the case. If you happen to get them both come off, then you've got to retime it. Right. That's the only one that has to be retimed. Yeah, it's not but, a real difficult job to do. And in the shop, we charge about 45 minutes labor to do it. So it's, it's fairly, you know, the actuators themselves are kind of expensive. I want to say they're in the $250 range. Uh, wow. But what's yeah. going to happen is that on the absolute worst possible day the hottest day of august it's gonna stick on heat and you ain't gonna get it off <laughs> and you can cycle ignition all you want and all you can be able to do is just jump out of truck and run <laughs> okay <laughs> all right i have another question sure for go you. ahead i have a 2006 silverado chevrolet and and we added a, a trailer brake to it okay and then all of a sudden the trailer brake stopped working where is is there a fuse that there I is check? yes there sir. is it's in the, it's in the fuse center under the hood. Okay. There's a fuse. Do you happen to know which one it is? No. I, I when, you, when you take the lid off, you can turn the lid over and everything's labeled. You just got to line the lid up with, with the box so you can mm -hmm. correspond between the two. And, in fact, it shows you a picture of the box. It shows you a picture of the circuit breakers and the relays and the fuses that are in it. And then at the bottom, all those are numbered. At the bottom, the numbers correspond with what component that they carry right so it's fairly easy to get in the box and find out which one it is i think yeah. it's labeled yeah and there's always going to be a fuse on that because what happens is that gets pulled or dropped or rubs on something or whatever right. and it ends up popping that fuse pretty common okay uh, now there's no inline fuse no. to that no sir not, no, that I'm aware not of. on the factory setup now if somebody installed it who knows i mean it just depends yeah, on what they want yeah, to do yeah that's what it was yeah, if it's a factory setup, then it would not have, it would only have the one in the fuse box up front. Now, like I say, if it's an aftermarket setup, you just have to talk to whoever installed it because, you know, they may have anything. Okay. All righty. Thank you very much for your show. Yes, sir. Thank, Thank you. you for calling. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive, I would love to have you. And John's been patiently holding. Good morning, John. Hi, Lewis and Brian. It's John again from Toronto. Oh, hi, oh, John. How you doing? Nice to talk to you again. Good, you helped me out last week. By the way, we're about two hours from Detroit, if anybody wants to know where we are. <laughs> In case anybody doesn't know where Toronto is, huh? Yeah, yeah you're right. Well, you know Rob Ford, so you probably know that. There you go. <laughs> My question is, the court I was talking about last week, about how to do, I got the service, I want to do everything now, and the antifreeze, again, I don't get proper answers on how to do that. Could you give me the procedure that you would do for a, 
for a four-cylinder 08 Accord as far as, you know, draining and uh, what you would do that way. Sure, that one's real, real easy, John, because the coolant that you're going to get, the Honda coolant is pre-mixed. So you don't have to worry about using distilled water or being careful mixing it. It's going to come as a pre-mix. That uh, pre-mix on a Honda is blue. Yeah, it'll be blue in color. Right. And it'll say on the jug, 50-50 mix. Mm-hmm. Do not add water. Right. But right. what I like to do is, of course, drain the radiator, which is a no-brainer. That's easy. And sometimes you're better off to take the little radiator hose off to do that rather than take the little drain cock out. Because sometimes when you take a little plastic drain cock out, it'll start leaking and you can't stop it. So we oh, generally good. Will, That's good to know. <laughs> we generally pull the little radiator hose. It's just easier and less problematic. Next thing is there a way that you can find to drain the engine block. That's even better. Sometimes there's a bolt or there's a plug or something. You just have to look around. Every one of them's different. You'd have to look on that exact car. But if you can drain the engine block, you're getting far more of the old coolant out. If you can't drain the engine block and you can only drain the radiator, then it's imperative to do it you know, fairly regularly. You don't want to let what's in the engine block ever get totally depleted because then you got depleted coolant. So basically drain both of them, replace the plugs, fill it up, and then you're going to need to turn the heater to high run it, come back, and add again until all of the air is out of the system. That system will self-bleed. There's no procedure for bleeding. It's a pretty easy one to service. Okay. And then you get about, if you, if, you, if they do the drain, you get about 80% out there at that point. If, you, if, if they drain, drain the engine the block, block and the yeah. radiator, they'll probably get close to 90 to 95% out. If you can't drain the engine block and you only drain the radiator, you're probably getting about 60% out. The now, Honda dealer said he usually does it. He uses about uh, a gallon. Yeah, he's getting uh, probably about 60% of yeah. it. Uh, yeah. What he could do if he can't find a drain plug on the engine block or wants to do something different, you could actually drain it, fill it, kind of like we suggested on your transmission, just do it twice. In that case, you'd probably get about 80% out. But okay. if you find a tech who's willing to go through the trouble to find the drain, and there's almost always one on there, if there's not, sometimes you can actually knock one of the freeze plugs out and you know, drain it that way and you just put another freeze plug in it, which is not that big of a deal. Yeah, I read that on your site. I was mm-hmm. looking at it, and yeah, that's great. I just wanted to confirm all this. And it, you've really, you're, you're so helpful. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. We'll and, talk to you again. Well, great. We sure appreciate you calling, man. Bye now. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. All right, we got to take one more quick little break, and we'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. And that's why you never put a dead or live octopus in the microwave. Hey, it's the Ask Alphonse Show with me, Alphonse the Know-It-All Cajun. Hey! Caller, what you want to know? Alphonse, my old truck needs some repairs. Or should I buy a new one to save money? Well, let me get out my calculator here. Let's say a new truck costs about $35,000 plus $3,500 or so in taxes, then higher insurance. And you know, in about three years, the value is going to drop to about $15,000. That's $8,000 a year just to drive it. Wow, I never thought of it like that. I suggest taking it to Agco Automotive for a general inspection to see if your old truck is worth keeping, which I think it is. And if so, keep bringing it to Agco for regular maintenance, and you'll be able to drive it for a whole lot longer. And I can spend money on other things like my beautiful wife. I'm assuming she's right there in the room with you, huh? Alphonse, you do know it all, don't you? Learn more about the benefits of Agco at agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco. It's the place to go. Hey, welcome back, and thanks for listening. I'm your host, Louis Alvarez, and with Mr. Brian Terry. 
Give us a call. It's 291-6901. That'll get you right straight to us. That's right, and we still got plenty of time to get your questions answered thoroughly for you. Absolutely right, and we wish you'd spend some of your Saturday morning with us. We always enjoy hearing from you. And a lot better than you and I talking back and forth, huh? <laughs> oh, we'll do it if you make us. That's <laughs> it, hey. One thing about cars, you're not ever going to run out of things to talk about. Oh, that's for a fact. Yep. That is for a fact. We've been talking about it with 23 years on this show. We Still, really, yeah, yeah, hadn't had to repeat too much either. <laughs> that's it. They, they come up with new junk every day that oh, we yeah. got to talk oh, about. That's, that's absolutely, boy. I was speaking with a gentleman in the shop yesterday, a uh, really, really nice fella came in, and he was telling me that he's got a high-mileage Toyota. I guess he's had, I don't know, 160,000, miles on, and he said okay. he's burning some oil. Okay. And it's, it's starting to use some oil. And – he got a bad piece of advice, and that was, he said, the dealers told him that he could go 10,000 miles between all changes. 10,000. 10,000 between all changes. Wow. So I said, well, that's probably why you're burning all, because right. the all wasn't changed often enough. The rings are probably sticking, and you could confirm that with a compression test. Sure. He says, well, the guy at the dealership told me to switch to a thicker oil. No, I said, no, well, no, this no. wait is, a minute. Yeah, the same guy that told you to go 10,000 miles. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Some more bad advice. Well, and see, that is absolute worst possible advice. That comes from a time years and years and years past, and it really didn't make a lot of sense even back then, but way, way back, engines used to use Babbitt for uh-huh. rod and main bearings. Correct. And Babbitt was a very soft metal, and that's one reason they used it, because the friction was low on and all that. But it was not at all uncommon for the main and the rod bearings to wear out around 60,000, 70,000 miles. Right. And the engine would start losing oil pressure because there was too much clearance between the bearing and the crankshaft. So the oil pump couldn't keep up, and the engine would lose oil pressure. And when that would happen, it was not uncommon to start putting thicker oil in the car. And what the thicker oil would do is just boost the oil pressure up. Right. Because Stay there longer. thicker oil wouldn't leak out of the excessive clearance as fast as uh-huh. the thinner oils would. But what has happened over the years is that, number one, there hadn't been a car using Babbitt bearings in Since, several decades. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Everything uses aluminum bearings. They're select fit. The tolerances are extremely tight. Right. And all pressure issues are just really almost a thing of the past. Generally, if you have low oil pressure, you got a sludged-up engine or something, you don't have a all bearing right. problem, not a main or rod bearing problem. You just hardly ever see that. And by the time you do, they're burned up or, or damaged from running out of oil. Sure. And, the point is, thicker oil is not going to help at all. No, now, it's actually going to cause a problem. It's going to cause a problem because it is going to increase the oil pressure. Now you're throwing more oil to the top end of the engine. That extra oil is going to override the valve guide seals and stuff like sure. that. Thicker oil is going to cling to the cylinder walls more, so the rings are going to have a harder time getting rid of it. Uh-huh. Not only that, but thicker oil is going to have more what they call volatility. In other words, as the crankshaft whips through the oil, it produces windage. Now, okay. windage is it's spinning in there, and it's picking up some of this oil. The thicker oil is going to produce more windage. So you're going to have an oil vapor in the crankcase, which is going to get sucked out through the PC system. So you're losing more oil that way. Uh-huh. So using a thicker oil is the absolute worst possible thing you can do when you have an oil consumption problem. And, and not to mention the thicker oil is not going to get to the top of the engine fa- as fast as the thinner oil should. Well, that's right. So, therefore, you're going to start burning up valves, time and chain guides, well, you know, things of that nature. You're going to start wearing your time and chain out if you have a time and chain because now the tensioner and all, which relies on that oil getting up there to energize e- the tensioner and take a slack out of the timing chain. Immediately at startup. Right. It can't get up there as fast because... 
it just it's takes thicker. longer for thicker oil to get up there. Right. The oil doesn't run down as fast. So you have an engine that maybe is already sludged up, maybe already has some problems. You throw a thicker oil in there, you could theoretically pump all the oil into the top of the motor and sure. end up burning the motor burning up the because it doesn't run, in, you know, run back nearly as fast. But it just goes to show you the level of information you can get. And this was from a Toyota dealership. Right. A supposedly reputable right. dealer. And I'm sure the dealer is reputable. And I'm sure Toyota would have a stroke if they I'm heard sure. him giving that kind of advice. But this is some guy who's just spouting off, off the top of his head, knows absolutely nothing about what he's talking about. Right. He just happens to work at the dealership and... They're, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, he, he may have been flipping burgers at McDonald's last week, this week as a service rider. I don't know right. what his qualifications are. Obviously, they're not too good. But it's just kind of, I guess, a problem in this trade that you have a lot, a lot of people who have really, really silly notions, uh-huh. and they will spout those off as though they are fact. And people tend to trust people that are in a position of authority, or not really authority, but in a position of a technical nature. Uh-huh. You would expect they know what they're doing. Correct. And, you know, I go on a forum that has several, like 50-something thousand shops, and some of the information that I hear from these guys absolutely shocks me. I mean, I, know. I just, I'm like, I can't believe he said that. <laughs> you know, uh, I had a guy earlier this week who, I don't know how we got on the top, we were talking about when you put two new tires on a car, every expert I know says they should go on the back of the car. Okay. Because they're safer that way. In fact, Michelin has got a real nice, well, an article, and they've got actually a video where they take two cars, put new tires on the front of one, new tires on the back of the other, take on a test track, and it's very clear what's happening. Uh Because the back of the car has way more to do with the stability of the car than the front does. It does. So when you put two new tires, they go on the back of the car. And that's just the way the engineers, the way the guys who make the tires say it has to go. So Uh you just got to accept that. And this guy is arguing, oh, no, they should go on the front of the car. Well, you know, we're not going to take the tire-changing guy's advice. We're going to take the engineer who designed the car and the engineer who designed the tire's advice. Exactly. But he's telling all his customers that, no, they go on the front. And Well, it's more convenient to go on the front. Well, maybe it is because if you're going to lie in the car, you got two new tires to line it up with. There you go. So it's more convenient for him. Exactly. The fronts generally wear out first, so he doesn't have to go to the extra step of rotating the back to the front and putting the rears on there. So it's easier for him. Right. But it's also totally bogus advice. Sure. And that's coming from a supposed trained technician that you might run across anywhere in the field. Yeah. So it just tells you you can't always just go just because the guy's got a blue shirt with his name on it and works (laughs) at a place that says they fix cars. Right. You can't necessarily. You have to verify the information you're getting. and, And look who's giving it to you. And maybe verify it from more than one source. Sure. And a credible source. Hey, let's go to our phone lines with Patrick. Good morning, Patrick. I got a Lincoln that I've had parked since November of 2010. Okay. And I just haven't driven it. And I'd like to start maybe fixing it up and driving it again. What kind of things do I need to be aware of for a car that's been, I mean, obviously the battery's dead. Yeah, uh-huh. Patrick, that is probably the absolute worst thing you can do to a car is let it sit like that. I mean, at a very least, you, like you mentioned, you're going to have to replace the battery. I would also try to drain the fuel out of it. I wouldn't run that contaminated fuel through the system because you may create a lot of really serious problems. And that's no small task on that car because it doesn't have a drain plug in the tank. You're probably going to have to drop the fuel tank to get that old contaminated fuel out of it. You're certainly going to want to change the engine oil, and I would probably recommend changing all the fluids in the car, you know, the, the coolant, the transmission fluid, and all of that before trying to drive it. Another thing, you might want to take a look at the tires and see how old they are. And if you're not sure how to check that, you can go to the website, and uh, there's a 
guide in there. It shows you how to determine the age of your tires. Because let's say they were three or four years old when you parked the car, and now four years have gone by. Well, now they're seven or eight years old. So they may be actually dangerous right now. But other than that, you may have to tow it somewhere to get it to start. A lot of times when a car's been sitting that long, it won't just start right back up. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But at a minimum, I would probably do those things. Yeah, and I'm thinking about towing it, like, to your place or something like that. Not a bad idea. Just have someone that knows what they're doing look at everything. I would probably also want to change the brake fluid in it just because it's been sitting a lot. Go ahead and flush all that out to get the contamination out. Once you do get it running and start driving it, you better expect some more issues. Yeah, you're probably going to have some little issues, (laughs) initially at least. And you may get them all worked out in time, but... Things like shock absorbers have been sitting in one position, so the little seal ring in there has been sitting in one position. The bore has kind of etched itself to it, and when it starts moving, it creates a little rough spot, so you may get a shock leaking. Or wheel bearings. Wheel bearings could go bad because they've been sitting in one position. That roller's been in one spot on the race. It may have etched it. So it's, like I said, kind of a bad situation, but not insurmountable. You're just going to have to kind of know what you're getting into. Just kind of expect some more repairs shortly down the line. Yeah, very It's often. not something you're just going to get running and, and drive with, yeah, with no take repercussions. Off everything's going to be great. Yeah, a lot of times it does. Well, it's not unlike a person who maybe, let's say you got a guy who's been in a coma for four years, and all of a sudden he pops out of it. He can't just go out there and run the Boston Marathon. He has to kind of take it easy, yeah. and, and he may have some little collateral issues because of it. He can eventually work it out and be as good yeah. as he ever was, but yeah, I, I would, like I would expect car. a few issues. Yeah, I just like the car. I'd like to have it running again, but it was I didn't have the money. To, you know, It had a cracked uh, cooling system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't have the money at the time to fix it, but now... Well, and, you, and you're probably going to end up changing most of that cooling system anyway, which yeah. is going to fix the initial problem plus... You actually make it better than it was. And, I mean, no yeah. matter what, you already own the car, so whatever you put into it, even a cheap used car nowadays is seven to $10,000. Oh, okay. And the absolute best used car you can get is the one you already got because you know the history of it, and yeah. everything's good except what's bad, so you just fix that. And, you, know, you go buy a used car, who knows what you get. Right, you don't know what you get. Yeah, you don't know what the other guy did. So, I mean, even if you got to dump some money, and if you like the car, it's probably still cheaper than anything else you can do. Yeah, okay, well, I appreciate your advice. I'm figuring out whether I should just donate it or... Yeah, well, it just depends. It's probably not going to be something that you're just going to put a battery in and take off and everything's right. going to be great. You're going to yeah. probably end up putting some money in it. So you just have to kind of decide. And what you could do to kind of hedge your bet, Patrick, is get it in to let us do a general inspection, and we could tell you, hey, it's probably best not to try to rebuild this one because we found this, 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 this. Or, hey, it looks pretty good. You know, I don't see any really major issues looming. Odds are if we do this and this and this, it'll be okay. So... We're not perfect, and we can't tell you everything that's going to happen, but we can sure head your bed. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. We're going to take one last little break, and we'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. And that's why cayenne pepper should never be stored in the bathroom. Hey, it's the Ask Alphonse Show with me, Alphonse the Know-It-All Cajun. Call her what you want to know. Alphonse, my car needs a new transmission, but I think there might be some other problems looming in the near future. I might as well get a new car, right? Well, here's what I'll recommend. Take it to the pros at Agco Automotive for a general inspection. They know their stuff and they're mighty honest. They'll be able to see if there's any problems likely in the future and tell you your best option. 
And if you keep your car, bring it into ACO for regular maintenance, and you'll be driving it for a long time. Thank you, Alphonse. You do know it all. Say, are you as good-looking as you are smart? Well, let's just say, I know you wouldn't be disappointed. Learn more about the benefits of AGCO at agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. AGCO, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Alphand, from the Magco Automotive. Got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here in the co-pilot seat. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Go ahead and give us a call. It's 291-6901. We'd love to hear from you. And we got Eddie online. Good morning, Eddie. Hi. Yes, sir. I have an electrical question about an old car I'm restoring. Sure, you bet. I have a 66 Plymouth Belvedere. I'm changing over from points to electronics. Yes, sir. And... The new wiring harness I have has a balance resistor on it, and the car has one on it, too. Right. How do I go about hooking that up? You would use one or the other, not both. What the balance resistor did with the points, uh, Eddie, was that it cut the voltage going to the points to preserve the life of them, and then there was actually a bypass on the starter. In other words, if you ever noticed the little terminal on the side of the starter, there's one that energizes the starter, and there's another. That's the ignition bypass. When the starter solenoid came forward, it would bypass the ballast resistor. It put 12 volts to the point to make it crank faster, make it start faster. But when it was running, if you ran 12 volts through them constantly, you'd burn them up pretty fast. So they had a resistor which cut that voltage down to somewhere around 8 volts. Now, the electronic thing probably needs less than 12 volts, and that's why it's going to have a ballast resistor. So what you would do is just go in, take the original one off the car, and use the one they supply. And it may not cut it to 8 volts, maybe cut it to 10 or whatever, whoever built that setup wanted in it. So you just have to go with whatever they supplied. So I take the wires off the old one and piggyback them onto the new one? Well, just take the whole resistor out and hook it in. You'll hook the new ballast resistor in right there. You're going to have to have a wiring diagram to know your answer I can give you without seeing it because aftermarket stuff is not like the original equipment. They do it all kinds of different ways, but it ought to have some kind of schematic with it. I would think, as a general rule, you'd take the old ballast resistor out and put theirs in its place and just hook the wire up right there. You know, just completely okay. replace what was in there before. Okay. All righty? All right. Thank you very okay, much. Man. Thank All you. Right, sir. Bye-bye. All right. 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive, I would love to have you. And we got David online. Good morning, David. Good morning. How you doing, Lewis? Doing great, doing sir. Doing great. Uh, Lewis, I got a, a 98 Lincoln Talent car. Okay. The engine turns real good. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's hard to start in the morning. I have to make three or four attempts before it'll start. Okay. Uh, I changed the inline filter and yeah, also that, the air filter. Well, they probably mm-hmm. both need to change, but that's not ever going to help that problem. Uh-huh. You know, a, fi- a fuel filter will not ever help, like, a hard start problem or a miss at idle or anything like that. Because when it restricts the fuel, it's going to miss under load. It's not ever going to miss. Your fuel requirements are the absolute lowest at an idler or at starting. So... It's not going to be something like that. More likely what it's going to be is something like the fuel pump maybe bleeding down. And you have to have an accurate fuel pressure gauge to check that. What you do is you put the gauge on, start the car, read the fuel pressure, turn the car off, and then watch how fast the pressure degrades. And if it drops to zero pretty quickly, what's most likely happen is a check valve in the pump is draining the fuel back to the tank. So if the pressure drops, when you go to start the car, you turn the key on, and what happens, it runs the pump for about two or three seconds. Not long enough for it to push it all the way up to the front. So you crank, crank, crank. It won't start because there's no fuel in the injectors. You turn it off. You turn it back on. 
hit it again, well, it's run the pump for three or four more seconds. So inevitably, when you sit and turn the key on and off, it'll get it up there. One way to kind of confirm that, David, that you don't need any tools for, is next time you go to start it, rather than just turning the key to start, turn the key all the way to on and then turn it off and wait a few seconds and do it again and do that like three times and then hit it and see if it starts right away. Mm-hmm. Because what you've done is you've run the pump three or four times. If it starts right away when you do that, most likely it's going to be the check valve and the fuel pump. Mm-hmm. And that's inside the gas tank. It is, correct. yes, sir. Oh. <laughs> and inside the fuel pump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's it then, right? Yeah, well, that's, nope. that's one possibility. Right. Like I say, you got to do the test, I told you first. I mean, there's yeah, lots right. of things I could tell you it could be. But, uh-huh. again, you run out of money on could-be's. You, you yeah, have to right. do some testing there and, and determine – that that's what it yeah. is, but that yeah. is one very common thing that causes that. Now, about pressing the accelerator, does like absolutely that. No. no good whatsoever. All you do is fooling yourself. Uh huh. All you do is opening and closing an air valve. Uh huh. You can pump it till you're blue in the face. It's not going to affect that one way or the other. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Lord. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, have a good day. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Two nine one sixty nine zero one is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive hour, we'd love to have you. And let's see, man, I think I just hung up on our caller. <laughs> I'm sorry, caller. If you call right back, I'll get you right straight back up to the top of the list. Too many buttons? I guess. Too many buttons. I just pushed the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> you know how that is, boy. You wouldn't want me flying your 747, right? There you go. <laughs> That's why we fix cars and not fly airplanes, That's right? That's absolutely right. They got too many buttons on cars now, boy. Uh, boy, I'm telling you. Like David was saying, that piece of advice is one of the things that could very likely cause that, it's just something that we see a lot. But right. it's not without seeing the car and doing tests, there's no way to... Right, you don't just run out and put a fuel pump in. No, absolutely not, because there's no way to determine that without going in and measuring and Correct. determining. That's why we have diagnosis, because it's something you do that doesn't cost much that prevents something that does cost a lot. There so, you go. Hey, we're going back to phones. Jay, good morning, Jay. Good morning, guys. How y'all doing? Doing great, good morning. sir. I got a question, an air conditioning question, you and know. I... I a couple callers ago, I heard that guy had a question, but I'm not sure mine is the same. But okay. I have a 99 Chevy Silverado. Okay. And it's the strangest thing. It works sometimes, and then sometimes it doesn't. Like, okay. It, like, in the morning, mm-hmm. if it... If it's cloudy and still cool, I, that, I, it blows cold air for hours. But mm-hmm. in the middle of the day, when it's hot, mm-hmm. it may only last five minutes, and then it, it's blowing, you know, it's not very cold to where it's hot air coming out. Yeah, Jay, I, I can tell you a couple things that can cause that. Okay. One could be the system is just low on refrigerant. And what happens is that when the system's low, it can cool when it's cool outside. And it will do that. But when it gets hot, it can't cool very well. And it's going to get overheated pretty quick. And the clutch may get overheated and kick out. Or it can also suck the low side pressure too low and a little cycle switch will cut it out. So that's one possibility. Another is the clutch itself may be going bad, and it gets hot during the heat of the day, and it cuts out. A third one would be the cycle switch itself can actually go bad and cause that kind of a problem. What I would do, Jay, is next time it cuts off, if you can conveniently pull over, raise the hood, and look at the compressor. And with the AC still on, if the compressor clutch is not turning, you know you can see a little hub on the front? Yes, sir. If it's spinning, but it's not cold. Now you're into something pretty big because you're into a refrigerant problem. But if that clutch is not turning, the next thing you could do if you're fairly handy is reach over and unplug that little cycle switch and take something like a paper clip and just jump across it temporarily. And if the clutch immediately cuts in, then it's probably low on refrigerant. 
Okay. And okay. Uh, again, what a shop would do is they would evacuate the system, measure the charge, and they could tell you exactly how low you were. Right. And then they would have, you know, you probably got a leak somewhere. They would repair the leak and recharge it. When you jump it, just jump it long enough to see if the clutch comes right. on. It's, don't get tempted just to leave that in there so yeah, the air conditioner will work. The reason it cuts it off is to protect the compressor. Correct. You you'll burn it, it up. Yeah, you'll burn the compressor up. Okay. All right. Well, and I, I checked the pressure. You know, I bought at a local mm-hmm. auto parts store right, and bought right. the coolant and mm-hmm. all that. And I checked it. And I mean, it's still, you yeah, know. Yeah, you see like, on a truck, even a truck that old, you can't go by those gauges at all. Okay. I mean, they will okay. be just, they'll lead you down the road so far wrong. What you have to do is actually evacuate the charge and measure it. It's the only right. way to know how much refrigerant is in there because it could be a half a pound, three quarters of a pound low. Gauges will still read just fine, but it will not cool very well, and inevitably it will hurt the compressor because it doesn't transport the oil properly through the system. Okay. All right. All right, guys. Well, okay. I appreciate the time. Thank you. All right. All right, right sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's see. We got time for one more? Yeah. Yeah, let's try it. We're going to try to get in there. We got Rick on the line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. Hey, I guess I had my radio off, so you might have answered the question on the previous call okay. before I got into it. Mm-hmm. But we have a 2003 GMC Sierra 2500 HD with air conditioner issues. The gauges, when you throw them on there, mm-hmm. the high side and low side are both at 90. Yeah, well, then the compressor's not doing anything at all right. because the high side should be basically about double the ambient temperature right. plus 40 degrees, and the low and side ought to be around degrees. 30. Yeah. Most likely, the compressor is either not engaging or not working. If they're both and close to the same, yeah, it is not engaging. And we tried jumping with the low, you know, with mm-hmm. that paperclip trick, and yeah, it came on once, and then after that, it didn't. So I'm not sure. Yeah, and I tell you, I'm just about out of time. But what you might want to do is get a voltmeter and put it on the lines at the compressor. Make sure you're getting a charge there. You know, 12 volts between it. Because if you are, then it's probably the clutch itself is bad. If you're not, you have to trace it upstream. And I'm sorry, we're just totally out of time. That's right. You want to <laughs> thank all our there you callers. Go. <laughs> <laughs> thank all our calls and all the folks who have called in today and all the people who listen on podcasts. Give us a written review. We'd certainly appreciate it. It moves us up in the ratings. And we want to tell everybody how much we appreciate them listening to the show. Preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.